Welcome to the Center Ranch Church Weekly Podcast. We believe that faith comes by hearing the Word of God. Thanks so much for checking out the podcast. Here's this week's message. All right, listen, we started a new series last week that we're calling Be Holy, really creative name, but that's exactly what we're talking about. We're talking about God's instruction, his call on the life of believers to walk in holiness. We started in 1 Peter chapter one, where Peter tells us, be holy, and then he quotes a scripture from Leviticus. It says, for the scriptures say, and he quotes what God said in Leviticus, be holy as I am holy. So we talked about God's desire for us to be like him, that as his children, he wants us to, we're supposed to be like our father. In fact, we looked at 1 John chapter three, where it talks about, you can tell who somebody belongs to by the way that they live their life. You can tell if somebody belongs to the devil or if they belong, if they're a child of God by whether they walk in righteousness and holiness or whether they allow sin to remain in their life. It, it's, it's a mark in our life that reveals who we belong to. So someone can tell you that they serve the Lord, they can attend church, they can wear a Christian t-shirt, all of those things, but if you don't see that they're walking in holiness, moving in that direction, you know that they don't really belong to the Lord. It's a serious issue that reveals who we, who we belong to. Then we looked at 2 Peter chapter 3 where Peter's talking about Jesus returning again. And he starts talking about the end of the world, how all of these things are going to be destroyed. And he says, in light of that, there's a, an appropriate response for believers knowing that we're, this world's going to end. You and I live in the last days. We believe that. We believe we live in the last times. You can look at what Jesus said. When you see these signs happening, you know that the end is near. And we'll look around at our lives and see those very things. It's unfolding all around us. We live in the final hours. Jesus is coming again soon. This, this thing is going to end the way, that we, the way that we know it to be now. So in light of that, he says our response isn't to be super afraid. It's not to curl up in a fetal position and be worried all the time. He didn't say all things are going to be destroyed. So you got, I don't know what you're going to do. He says, no, here's the appropriate response. What holy and godly lives we should be living. Knowing that we live in the final hours, we should be the, the most motivated people to walk in holiness that God has ever had on the planet. If the closer we get to his return, what, what holiness should be a more driving force in our lives, we, we should be more motivated to walk in holiness than, than any believer that's come before us. What holy and godly lives we should live. Then we took a few minutes to talk about one aspect of holiness, which is to be separated, separation, a distinction, set apart, which is what holy means. That if we serve the Lord, if we're Christians, we shouldn't live like the people around us. You should be able to tell a difference between us and a non-believer in our marriages, in the way that we conduct our business, in our language, in our habits, all of those things. You should see a difference. We looked at Revelation chapter three and what Jesus said to the church at Laodicea. He said, I, I would that you be hot, or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I'll spit you, I'll spew you, I'll vomit you out of my mouth. A, a violent repulsion that Jesus had towards what's lukewarm. And we talked about what it means to be lukewarm. That if I had a glass of ice water or a, a cup of hot coffee, what would I need to do to get them to become lukewarm? Well, I could just leave them sit. And the more they adjusted to the environment around them, they'd be moving towards becoming lukewarm until they just completely matched whatever the temperature of the room is. We would call that being, being room temperature, tepid, lukewarm. 
And Jesus said, I've got no tolerance. He's, and he's writing to the church. He's writing to believers. I've got no tolerance for, for people who claim to be Christians, but they adjust to their environment. They look just like the culture and the environment around them. That's why he says, I would that you be hot or cold. I want there to be a difference between you and people who don't know me and the culture that you live in. That, that's the call in our lives. And then we finished by looking at a few passages from Nehemiah where Nehemiah says, man, this, this wall, it's a disgrace. The people of God are in trouble. This wall has been torn down and he sets it in his heart. We're, we're gonna rebuild this wall. And we, we said, we use that wall as an analogy for holiness. Let's rebuild the walls of holiness, a distinction between the people of God and the, the rest of the world. We even looked where the people began to build next to each of their homes. Each one would build by their house. So there's personal responsibility. A call to holiness isn't an opportunity for us to point out flaws in other people, but for each one of us to begin to say, you know what, I need to make some changes. I need to raise the standard of holiness. We're rebuilding the wall of holiness, where it's fallen in the church and in the mindset where we've adjusted to the culture around us. We're working to change that, amen? We're pushing in the opposite direction, rebuilding walls of holiness in the lives of men and women of God, no, no longer in trouble or in danger, or vulnerable to the ways of the world, a distinction between us and people that don't know Jesus. Amen? Amen. So we'll continue that series this morning. Before we jump in, would you pray with me? Father, we love you. There's nobody like you. Holy Spirit, we invite you to speak to our hearts. You're our teacher. You're our counselor. We look to you. Lord, I pray you bless us with eyes to see. Bless us with ears to hear hearts that are, are tender and receptive. Father, flood our hearts with light so we can know you more. Give us a spirit of understanding. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Usually in the fall, uh, we'll do some kind of staff retreat and try to plan out the, the next year, kind of loosely plan out things on the calendar and kind of get an idea of what, what the next year is going to look like. And part of that planning process, I will ask a couple of the staff members to, to help me think through some series ideas. They'll bring some ideas and we'll try to be creative and think through different topics or creative ways to approach different topics that we've talked about before. We'll spend time praying and kind of uh, we'll leave room for adjustment, but kind of plan out some of the series for the upcoming year. So in the fall of 2021, we planned out some of the series that, for this year. One of the series we talked about was, was this series. I shared that, man, I have it in my heart. I feel like God wants us to do a series where we talk specifically about holiness. And my idea for the series was that we would call it Fully Exposed. And so we, we, we put it on the calendar. Okay, we're going to do that before we get to Easter, a series on holiness, uh, Fully Exposed. And it was on the calendar, but somebody saw it. I think it was Pastor Christina. And she was just referred to it and said, you know, we've got that series coming up before we get to Easter. You've got a series that you're going to do on uh, sexual purity and dealing with sexual issues. And I said, I, I don't remember planning a series dealing with sexual issues. She said, yeah, it's on the, uh, it says fully exposed uh, on, the, on the calendar. So we said, you know what, maybe we change the name of the series. The series graphic was going to be a man in a trench coat for the, so we decided, let's just take a more straightforward, let's just call it be, be Holy. But where I got the idea to call it Fully Exposed comes from this passage in Hebrews chapter 4. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 4.
Hebrews chapter four, starting in verse 12, says, for the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one to whom we are accountable. So he's talking about the word of God, and he's letting us know when we deal with the word of God, like, like we are right now, that we're not just handling some ancient texts. It's not just literature. It's the word of God, and it's alive. It's active. It's powerful. He compares it to a sword that's able to cut things away from our life. It's able to make changes in us. And as he's talking about the power of the word of God and how it reveals our thoughts, it reveals our motives, he transitions a little bit and begins to talk about how God, God knows all of our thoughts. Nothing is hidden from his eyes. Everything is fully exposed. You know, when we begin to serve the Lord, sometimes we start, you know, you come to know Jesus and you start making changes in your behavior and some of the things that you do and you know I need to stop doing that. But then sometimes we can stall out in that process and allow certain sin to linger in our lives. And you're able to fool some of your Christian friends. Maybe you're able to, to, to fool your connect group family. You can certainly fool me. I'm probably very easy to fool. But this is letting us know that you can't fool God. God knows everything that's going on in your life. He knows all of your thoughts. He knows your motives. He knows what's on your internet search history. He knows, he knows the reasons behind why you do what you do. So even when something looks good on the surface, he knows if you've got some twisted hidden motive. Everything, everything is laid bare before the Lord. And why that is important is because it goes on to say, he is the one to whom you're going to give an account the one who knows it all anyway. Nothing is hidden. You can't have any secret area of your life or some secret sin tucked away somewhere. God knows all about it. And at the end, ultimately, you won't give an account to me. You won't give an, uh, an account to your small group leader. You won't give an account to your spouse. Ultimately, you'll stand before the Lord, the one who knows everything, and he is the one to whom you'll be held accountable. Let, let me read a few verses from Isaiah chapter 66 that speak along these same lines. Isaiah 66, starting in verse three, it says, but those who choose their own ways, delighting in their detestable sins, will not have their offerings accepted. When such people sacrifice a bull, it is no more acceptable than a human sacrifice. When they sacrifice a lamb, it's as though they've sacrificed a dog. When they sacrifice an offering of grain, they might as well offer the blood of a pig. A dog or a pig was considered unclean to the Jews. When they burn frankincense, it's as if they've blessed, blessed an idol. I want to read a couple more verses, but he's talking about people who do what, what they want to do. They follow their own desires. They follow their own ways, it says. It says they delight in what is detestable. And then it tells us, gives us as an example, how sin spreads in our lives and it begins to affect everything that we do. It corrupts things. That Even when these people bring an offering to the Lord because of their, their desire to do what they want to do, their refusal to walk in holiness, it's unacceptable to the Lord. They bring a lamb before the Lord, bring an offering to God. It's, it's like a human sacrifice. It's, it's detestable to the Lord. Let's skip down a few verses. 
In verse 17, it says, those who consecrate and purify themselves in a sacred garden with its idols in the center, feasting on pork and rats and other detestable meats will come to a terrible end, says the Lord. I can see what they're doing and I know what they're thinking. So I will gather all nations and peoples together and they will see my glory. So he's talking about people who are, who are finding satisfaction in things that God had told them not to do, that they were finding delight. Delighting in what is detestable. Now for you and I, it might be different. We're not offering incense in the, the garden of an idol or, or a temptation to munch on rats or whatever else they were doing that was unacceptable to the Lord. But there's other things that if we're not careful, we can begin to find joy in and in a similar way, delight in what is detestable. Maybe it's lust and things that we look at. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's lying. Maybe it's dishonesty with our money. Maybe it's just being, being mean, being cruel and putting people down and it makes us feel better about ourselves. Maybe it's some kind of substance, different things that we look to that we want to find fulfillment in, fill ourselves full of the things that God doesn't want to be in our lives. He wants to be the one that we find satisfaction and fulfillment in. And again, he says, I, I know what they're doing. I see everything that you're doing. And I know what you're thinking. I know what's going on in your heart and what, what's going on in your mind. So there's no sense in trying to hide it from him. There, there's an idea that can kind of creep its way through the church and in our lives that that as I progress as a Christian, we make good progress. I come to know the Lord and I start making changes that, that as I make progress, I can lose some of my motivation or I can begin to think because I've given up so many things, I, I'm, I'm, no, I'm nothing like what I used to be. I'm certainly better than those people I used to hang out with. That because of that, maybe it's okay to keep a, a couple of pet sins it's okay just to, I mean, after all, I'm only human. Everyone's got their vice. Everyone has a couple of indulgences. None of us are perfect. And so we begin to justify and make it okay that we keep some things around in our lives. That, that's compromise. And it puts us in a very dangerous position where we begin to think like that and justify why, listen, it's okay if I, if I continue to engage in this sin or that sin. It's not that big of a deal. It's a more tolerable sin. It's not one of those thin, sins that people would reject me for. I can justify it in my life. We begin to, to reason back and forth. That's compromising. Now, compromise can be beneficial in a lot of different areas. Compromise can be a good thing. If you're a business person, you're trying to make business deals, sometimes, you know, you're the person you're trying to deal with, they've got one perspective, you've got another, you both give a little bit, you make a compromise so that you can get the deal done. If you're trying to buy a house or sell a house or buy a vehicle, sell a vehicle, a lot of times there's a starting price and you negotiate, haggle a little bit, get to kind of a, a, a in-between point where you're both you're both comfortable, it's kind of a win-win and you've compromised and you come away and that it, it's a good thing, Right? In relationships, compromise can be a good thing. If you're married, you know that compromise can be something that's beneficial at times, that you don't always see eye to eye and you've got to figure, figure things out. As a husband, I've learned that compromise can be beneficial. This past year, we, we bought a new home. We moved. We, we did some remodeling in that new home. And part of the remodeling is we, we redid the kitchen, so we had to pick out new countertops. There was one kind of countertop that I thought was the better choice. That was more durable. I thought it was just going to be better in the long run. Kind of had some, you know, logical thinking behind my choice. And there was another kind of countertop that was 
It was prettier. It was prettier. That's the one that my, my wife wanted. So we, we, we went to look at countertops multiple times and we just couldn't see eye to eye. So what do you do in that situation? Well, as a, a good husband, you know that we, you can compromise. So we got the countertop that she wanted. And so sometimes counter, countertops, sometimes com- compromise can serve you well in different areas. But when it comes to God's instruction in our life, there is, there is no compromising. There's, there's either obedience or disobedience. And there's nothing, there's nothing in between. I want to look at the children of Israel as an example of this and the danger of compromise and how destructive it is when we begin to kind of negotiate in our hearts and minds about the things of God. I'm going to read to you from Deuteronomy chapter 7. I'll start reading in verse 1. It says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land you are about to enter and occupy, he will clear away many nations ahead of you. So he's he's giving instruction, preparing the children of Israel for when they move into the promised land. Clear away many nations ahead of you, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. These seven nations are greater and more numerous than you. When the Lord your God hands these nations over to you and you conquer them, you must completely destroy them. Make no treaties with them and show them no mercy. You must not intermarry with them. Do not let your daughters and your sons marry their sons and daughters, for they will lead your children away from me to worship other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will burn against you and he will quickly destroy you. This is what you must do. You must break down their pagan altars and shatter their sacred pillars, cut down their Asherah poles and burn their idols. For you are a holy people who belong to the Lord your God. Of all the people on the earth, the Lord your God has chosen you to be his own special treasure. So so God gave them very clear instruction how they were conducted to conduct themselves as they move into the land. You're supposed to destroy them completely, 100%. Drive them out of the land, tear down their stuff, get rid of their idols, get rid of the Asherah poles, completely annihilate, eradicate their influence on the land. Don't make treaties with them. Don't compromise. No no mercy. Don't work out marriages between your kids and their kids and win-win situations. You've got to get them completely out of here. So you can read through the story of how they they began to take the land. Joshua became their leader, leads them in. They they get to Jericho. You know the story. They march around seven days. God brings them an incredible victory over this powerful city with walls around it. The walls come crumbling down and they take the city and they continue to experience victories like that. There's some hiccups along the way, but they're moving into the promised land. They're driving people out. They're claiming new territory. They're setting up their own cities. They get to a point where they're even breaking up the land among the tribes of Israel. You get this portion, you get this portion. They're getting to a point where they're really comfortable. They've taken a good majority of the land. Joshua dies. We'll pick up the story in Judges chapter one. Judges chapter one. Starting in verse 27, they've moved in, divided up the land, doing really, really good. But it says this, starting in verse 27, the tribe of Manasseh failed to drive out the people living in Beth Shan, Tanak, Dor, Iblim, Megiddo, and all their surrounding settlements. 
because the Canaanites were determined to stay in that region. When the Israelites grew stronger, they forced the Canaanites to work as slaves, but they never did drive them completely out of the land. The tribe of Ephraim failed to drive the Canaanites out living in Gezer. So the Canaanites continued to live there among them. The tribe of Zebulun failed to drive out the residents of Kitron, Nahalo. So the Canaanites continued to live among them. But the Canaanites were forced to work as slaves for the people of Zebulun. The tribe of Asher failed to drive out the residents of Akko, Sidon, Alab, Akzib, Helba, Afik, and Rahab. Instead, the people of Asher moved in among the Canaanites who controlled the land, for they failed to drive them out. Likewise, the tribe of Naphtali failed to drive out the residents of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath. Instead, they moved in among the Canaanites who controlled the land. Nevertheless, the people of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath were forced to work as slaves for the people of Naphtali. As for the tribe of Dan, the Amorites forced them back into the hill country and would not let them come down into the plains. The Amorites were determined to stay in Mount Herez, Ajalon, and Shablim. But when the descendants of Joseph became stronger, they forced the Amorites to work as slaves. The boundary of the Amorites ran from Scorpion Pass to Selah and continued upward upward from there. So they were doing really well. They're advancing. They're driving people out. They're winning victories. But then they got to a point where they were pretty well, they're pretty well established. They're pretty well set up. They've got like 90% compliance on what God had instructed them to do. And they decided it would be way more convenient just to let off the gas a little bit and they pretty much had things under control. These enemies were really no longer a threat to them for the most part. And in fact, in a lot of situations, it was kind of nice having them around. They actually started to serve us. That's actually kind of beneficial. There's sometimes we're having the, these enemies, are supposed to do away with them. I kind, of like, I kind of like having them here, as long as they're under control and they, they, serve, they serve my purposes. But just like God had warned them, you've got to drive them completely out or it's going to spell disaster for you. So it tells us that they didn't drive them completely out. Just a few verses later, Judges chapter two, starting in verse 11, it says, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight and they served the images of Baal. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors who'd brought them out of Egypt. They went after other gods, worshiping the gods of the people around them. And they angered the Lord. They abandoned the Lord to serve Baal and the images of Ashtoreth. So after all that God had done for them, rescues them out of Egypt with a strong hand, signs and wonders, sustains them in the wilderness with all kinds of miracles, gives them all these victories, brings them into a land flowing with milk and honey. But something caused them to stop. It says they abandoned the Lord and they went after the images of Baal and these Ashtoreth poles. Those things shouldn't even been around if they would have followed the instructions of God. They were supposed to destroy them completely. They wouldn't have been tempted to even fall, fall into these areas, but now it's their destruction. What they kept around for their own purposes actually was what destroyed them. Now, you and I can have a similar mindset. We're not trying to drive people out of the land, but we are instructed not to achieve partial holiness, but complete holiness, that we're to be holy. How? As God, that, that's the standard. Be holy as I am holy. So certain things, we need to drive it out of our lives and not reach a point where we're much better than we used to be and it, it's, it's 
a place of comfort and convenience, and we allow certain sins to remain in our lives. That, that's the way that they compromised, and it ended up being their destruction. So maybe it's a different thing for different people. That you're, you're pretty honest in your business, but when you get into a tight pinch and you need to be a little bit deceptive and fudge the numbers a little bit, well, then, I mean, it serves your purpose. You've allowed something, dishonesty, to remain in your life. Like, you've got it under control, but now it, now it serves you. Or as a student, you're pretty honest as a student. If you're going to fail the test and you've got to cheat or you've got to copy someone else's work or be dishonest in some way, then it serves you. And you can justify why, why you need to do that. You, don't, you wouldn't commit adultery. You would never cheat on your spouse. That's not the kind of person you are. But you, you do have a few flirty relationships. You still like having that person at the office or that person online that you talk to everyone. You do have a few private messages with people that you like to go back and forth with. It just it makes you feel good about yourself. It serves, you, you've got it under control. It's not gonna run rampant, but it, it serves a purpose and helps you in some way. That's the same kind of mindset that got the Israelites into trouble. We've got these people under control. We've got them beat back to now that they're manageable. In fact, they're gonna serve us. That, that was their undoing. That was led to their destruction, that kind of mindset. And that's the mindset so many people have when it comes to sin and not walking in holiness the way that God has called us to walk in holiness. Those kinds of small compromises end up destroying people. I, I, don't, I don't party like I used to. I mean, I used to, man, I used to be crazy. I don't do that anymore. But on occasion, I still, you know, special occasion, I have a drink or two. It, we, we, we go for 85 to 90% holiness. That, that, that's a lie from the enemy. But you begin to think that that's acceptable in some way to the Lord. He said, be holy as I, he made the standard very clear. Complete holiness is what we're to work towards. And since I brought up drinking, I, I want to spend a couple of minutes talking about that for two reasons. One is that there's been something in the modern church where it's become trendy or fashionable to have an acceptable attitude towards alcohol. That you're kind of the edgy, progressive Christian if you've got a casual, accepting attitude towards, towards drinking. That's kind of the way things have seemed to be moving. I, I know of churches where their staff meetings are at bars, and they're just, you know, they're just kind of a, a hip church, and they're cool like that. They're okay with drinking. That is a dangerous mindset for the church to have. It's dangerous. And a second reason I want to talk about it is I, I've been doing this a little while now. I've been in ministry for a little over 20 years, and you start to see some patterns you start to see that the enemy has a couple of, of key tricks that he uses, that if he can make, get people to make a couple of key compromises, man, it's, that, that puts them on a slippery slope. And I've seen it time after time after time. And one of those key compromises, if you can get people to justify, and it's not that big of a deal, and begin drinking so many times, man, that's the slippery slope. And you know you, you, they're heading in the wrong direction. So I know that there are arguments, arguments you can make to defend alcohol. And in my past, I've made many of those arguments. But when you really start to look at what God's word has to say about alcohol, and there are times where it seems like it is tolerated, but when it addresses alcohol directly, it speaks very harshly against it. Let me give you one example from Proverbs chapter 20, verse one. It says, wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. 
Wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler. Those two descriptive words to talk about alcohol, wine or strong drink, a brawler or a mocker, it's talking about somebody who is destructive in nature. You know, somebody who's a, a brawler, destructive, looking to stir up fights, create animosity, destroy unity, looking to do damage of some sort. Uh, a mocker is somebody who's tearing people down. If you invited somebody over to your house and you described them after they left, man, that guy was a mocker and a brawler. He came in just to mock your family, said cruel, hurtful things. His intention was to harm, to, de to, to destroy relationships, to damage people and to damage things. You would be a fool to invite that person back into your home and expose your family to them again. But so many people invite that same spirit, that same, those same characteristics into their life by having a casual attitude or an accepting attitude towards alcohol. It says it's not a wise person. It's a foolish person who allows themselves to be led astray by the promises of what alcohol can deliver. It's a mocker and a brawler. Whatever argument you would make to justify alcohol, name somebody that alcohol really helped them. There's, there's plenty of people. We all know lots of people that, man, alcohol derailed their life. He had so much potential. Man, he got in the bottle and that, that was it. He started drinking. Man, that guy's really nice. He starts drinking. He slaps his kids around. It's we all know stories like that. You don't know any stories of a guy that was at the bottom. That guy's life, man, I think he was homeless. Then he discovered hard liquor. And man, he shot to the top. What a success. He, he said he owes, owes it all to his drinking. There's no stories like that. It hurts people. It harms people. It makes them do foolish things when they're in their right mind, they wouldn't do. It's a, it's a dangerous thing. Let, let me read to you this from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. It says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. So he's, he's dealing with a serious subject matter. People that will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's, that's everything. He's, he's going to list categories of people that are going to be excluded from the kingdom of God. And he says, don't be deceived. Why would he say that? Because he knows people will deceive others. People will deceive themselves. They'll, they'll play games with words and definitions and, and change things around and deceive people. He says, don't let them play games with you. This is serious. Neither fornicators nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, there's a, a lot of categories of people we could talk about there, but I'll, I'm just zeroing in on one this morning right now. It's drunkards. He says that drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, if you've ever spent time around people who drink, you notice the language that they use. There's a lot of disagreement about what being drunk even is and who is drunk and who isn't drunk. You can hear them recount the story of their, their weekend party and talk about, man, you were so drunk. I wasn't drunk. I was just, I was just a little bit buzzed. Now, now, you were drunk. I wasn't drunk. I was just getting a little tipsy. And they've got all different words that argue about who was drunk. Who, there's, no, there's no clear line about who is a drunkard and who is just someone who is, who is buzzed, who's just getting a, I was just loosening up a little. I just like to have a few to, to loosen up. If you've ever been around people who argue against why they shouldn't have gotten a DUI, I got pulled over. There's no way I was drunk. He, he had me blow on the thing and it said, I, there's something wrong with his machine. I don't know. There's no way I was drunk. I told you you were drunk. I mean, people argue that kind of stuff all the time. Do you know what the acceptable blood alcohol content level is to get a DUI in West Virginia? 
I didn't either. I had to, I had to look it up. They say people, you don't even know whether, what it means to be drunk in West Virginia, let alone in heaven. It's, it's 0.08, but it hasn't always been 0.08. It used to be 0.15. So even the government changes its, its description of what, what we consider to be under the influence. And you can press further into it, and there's different descriptions and different levels for what's under the influence and what's intoxicated and what's inebriated, all these different blood alcohol content, content levels. People are all over the place with it. So it's a dangerous game to play to assume you know how heaven defines being drunk and not being drunk. If we can't even make up our minds around people that are experts on the subject matter. It's not worth the risk to get to heaven and be ready to go strolling through the pearly gates and get stopped by St. Peter and say, no, no, no no drunkards allowed. And you try to plead your case that you weren't drunk, you were just buzzed. No, 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 Peter, listen, I I never, I wasn't a drunker. I just like to, you know, tie on a buzz every every now and then. Well, here in heaven, we call that drunk. It's not worth the risk. It's not worth the risk to, to, to try to justify a behavior that could exclude you from heaven. And I understand you, you can defend it in some way, but that's an immature mindset. It's more mature to say, you know what, if I'm better off without it, Paul had that attitude, not just towards alcohol, Paul had that attitude towards meat. If I eat meat and it causes somebody else to stumble, if it's gonna do somebody harm, you know, I, I just won't eat. So when it comes to alcohol, we're, we're pushing for maturity. It's a more mature mindset to say, if this thing's gonna cause people damage, my kid's gonna grow up watching me every once in a while throw a few back and they're gonna justify going off the deep end with it. If this can be destructive to someone else, you know what? I'll, I'll just have a club soda. I'll just have a, a sparkling water with a lime in it and you can keep the alcohol. It's, it's not worth the risk. There's, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So I, I don't have anyone in mind. This isn't, an, this isn't reactionary. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, but there is correction. Sometimes because there's no condemnation, people take the attitude, hey, that many thankful there's no condemnation in, in Christ Jesus. Well, that, that's true. That's not a license just to do whatever you want. Because the, the Bible said, we looked at last week, all scripture is God breathed. And it's useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be fully equipped for every, every good work. So there, there's a time for being corrected and realizing, you know what? There's, I'm not trying to put anyone under condemnation, but maybe, I, maybe I'd be better off to make a few adjustments in the way I lead my life. A, a week or two ago, I was talking to somebody about alligators and what it would be like to live in Florida. We're talking about how, you know, with every body of water in, in Florida, there's a stream, a pond, anything. You've got you've to assume that that thing's full of alligators, right? Because it probably is. At least that's my, my take on it. Then you go to the, to the ocean when you're in Florida, then you've got to assume there's sharks all over the place. So it's just, it would just be a different way of living for me, just to, to have alligators around. Maybe if you grow up with it, it's not that big a deal. You just kind of get used to it. But it, it would put me on edge a little bit. I wouldn't be comfortable sending my kids down to play at the creek or go fishing in the pond, knowing that lurking in that water is some prehistoric, borderline dinosaur animal is body is half mouth that could come lunging out at any moment and, uh, and pull my children in. I... I don't know if I could get used to that. That would be a, a stretch for me. So being in the ocean or being around water in Florida, you know, you get sharks and alligators and just hard for me to, to I enjoy going to visit. It'd be hard to live there and just feel relaxed. But where, where I live, if I'm playing out in the yard with my kids, do you know when, when, I'm, when I'm in my front yard, I have 
no fear of being attacked by a shark? I'm serious. I've never, I've never had any concerns. I, I just, it doesn't even cross my mind that a shark's gonna drop out of a tree on me or anything. It's just, I, I don't worry about it at all. When we sit around a campfire at night with my family and it's dark and we're just sitting around a little, a little bonfire and you hear rustling in, in the, the leaves, it's, it's never even crossed my mind. Alligator? I, I'm, not, I'm not worried about it at all. I have no fear of alligators and sharks where, where I live. Because I know that I live in an environment where, where they don't live, where they can't live. They can't, a shark can't survive in my yard. An alligator wouldn't be able to survive in my yard. So I know I don't have to worry about it. I'm completely safe. Now you and I can control the environment in our lives and do it in such a way that there are some sins that cannot exist. You don't have to worry about certain sins ever touching you, ever taking you out. You know, if I make a commitment, you know what, I'm just better off not drinking. I don't have to worry about whether I fall into a category of drunkard or not. That sin will never take me out. It'll never disqualify me from making it into heaven. I never have to worry about the ramifications and the implications of how I'm affecting my kids and the people around. It's impossible for that to ever touch me if I keep the environment around my life and in my body alcohol-free. I don't, I don't have to worry about it. You, know, you can do it with other areas. I said one area where, where the enemy always gets people on a slippery slope, or often does, another one is the area of relationships and sexuality. That's another area. If you, people start making compromises there, he can get them on a slippery slope. You can create an atmosphere. You, you know that I'm never alone with a, a woman that I'm not related to? I'm never alone with another woman. If I'm meeting with them uh, in my office, the door is open. Even if it's a, a female person on our staff and we're leaving the church and going to the same place to meet with somebody, even though it's inconvenient, we'll get in different cars. And we'll, well, hey, I'll meet, I'll meet you there. It might sound ridiculous, but you know what I'm doing? I'm creating an atmosphere where there are, uh, you, I'll never get taken out by adultery. I'll never cheat on my, it's impossible. It's, it's impossible because I'm never alone with another woman. It, just, it, it can't happen in that environment. It's just as likely for me to cheat on my wife as it is for me to get attacked by a shark in my front yard because the environment I live in it's so, it's so unconducive to that. It just, it cannot happen. So we've got to be wise and create atmospheres in our life where those things can't touch us, that can't take us out. Even with my kids. My daughters are not allowed to be alone with a boy. They're just not allowed to be alone with a boy, which you might think that's old fashioned, but you know what? I've created an atmosphere where there's a lot of things I don't have to worry about. I don't worry about it at all because I know, I know things can't happen. Because the environment, right? I'm, I'm, I'm dictating the environment. That's what the Bible tells us to do. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter four, verse 27, do not give the devil an opportunity. D don't give him an opportunity. So what, what are we supposed to do? Cre create an atmosphere in our life where we've closed all of the doors, where these sins can come in and take us out. It also lets us know that you can live in a way where you are giving him opportunities. And all of his intentions are to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That's all he wants to do in your life. So why give him any opportunities? Especially knowing that he's good at what he does. Don't give him opportunities. When, when it comes to relationships, don't make compromises. The, the Bible says don't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. When you're looking for someone to date, someone to marry, keep a high standard. Someone that loves Jesus with all of their heart. That, that's the standard. Don't be unequally yoked. Don't make compromises. When it comes to sexual relationships, it's between a husband and a wife in the covenant of marriage. Nothing outside of that. 
Otherwise, you're, you're violating the word of God. You're making a compromise. You're creating an atmosphere where you can be hurt and damaged and destroyed. You need to say amen on that. Amen. People assume you're in sexual sin if you don't. You got to keep ourselves sexually pure. In the covenant of marriage, a man and a woman, husband and wife, that's, that's where sexual relationships are good and blessed. Outside of that, it is sin and it's dangerous. And don't, don't buy into the mindset of, well, we're married in God's eyes. That's, that's a lie from the devil to get people comfortable from their sins. Because we live together, because we have sex, we're married in God's eyes. Jesus confronted a woman in John chapter 4 who'd been married five times. He says, you've, been, you've had five husbands, but the man you're living with now isn't your husband. He, he didn't say, well, because you're having sex and live together, it's basically number six. No, he, he separated from the others. You're not even married to this guy. So Jesus didn't say, well, in my eyes, you're, you're married. No, you're, you're, that's, it's sin. We, we can't justify these things and make a room for them in our lives. Give the devil no opportunity. Amen. Amen. Let, let me talk about a couple of aspects of holiness. Philippians chapter two. Philippians chapter two, starting in verse 12, it says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So he tells them to work out your salvation. Work out. In the New Living, it says to show the results. Show the results of your salvation. And then he says, for it's God who works in you. So there's something that you and I are instructed to work out. And then there's something that God is working, working in. So there's two aspects of what we're called to do. What God works in us, we'll call positional holiness. That when you and I accepted Jesus, we became the righteousness of God in Christ. That's what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter five. It says, old things have passed away, all things become new, that we're made holy, we're set apart, we're forgiven, we are, we are clean. It's a positional holiness. Like, like in Exodus chapter three, when Moses sees the burning bush, and he walks over to it to see what in the world's going on. And God speaks to him from the bush. And what's he say? Take off your shoes. This is holy ground. Well, what made that ground holy? He's been traipsing around on, on ground all day in those sandals. Why now does he have to take it off? Because this is holy ground. Had somebody been mopping that ground, scrubbing it, anointing it with oil? No, God's presence was there. And when God's presence was there, it consecrated all as holy. So when you and I accept Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes to, to live in us. We're made one with the Lord. We have his presence. There's a positional holiness. The Bible says we're seated with Christ in heavenly places. There's positional holiness. But there's also a practical holiness. That, that's what God works in us. He's working in us. But that's not enough on its own. He says you've got to work out that there is a responsibility on the believer to work out that holiness, to show it, to show the results of salvation, that the way we live, that we get rid of filth in our life, that we begin to, to get rid of sin, that we begin to pursue things that honor the Lord. I'll give you one example from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 18, it says, run from sexual sin, no other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. 
for sexual immorality is a sin against your body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You don't belong to yourself for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. He's talking about positional holiness. God purchased you. He gave you his Holy Spirit. He transformed you into to the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's positional holiness. But there's a response to that positional holiness. He says, don't you realize you now need to honor God with your body. Honor him with the way that you live. There's a practical holiness of working out what God worked in us. Let me give you another, another example. Ephesians chapter 5. This one's not on the screen. I didn't give him this one. Ephesians chapter five, starting in verse one. Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do. Because you are his dear children, live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. Obscene stories, foolish talk, and coarse jokes, these are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. You can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. For a greedy person is an idolater worshiping the things of this world. Don't be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins. For the anger of God will fall on all who disobey him. Don't participate in the things these people do. For once you were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord. So live as people of light. That's the New Living Translation. The New King James says, you, didn't you were, it doesn't say you were in darkness, it says you were darkness. And it doesn't say now you have light. Literal translation is now you are light. Now you are light in the Lord, but that, that's positional. He says, because you are light, now live as children of light that there is practical holiness, that God has made you holy, but the standard is to get rid of sin from our lives. Two aspects of holiness. But sometimes when we talk about living out that measure of holiness, it can be intimidating. It's a high standard for us to try to keep. So let me read a few more passages and then we'll pray. Back to Deuteronomy chapter seven, where God was telling the children of Israel to drive people completely out of the land. Verse 16 says, you must destroy all the nations the Lord your God hands over to you. Show them no mercy and do not worship their gods or they will trap you. Perhaps you will think to yourselves, how can we ever conquer these nations that are so much more powerful than we are? But don't be afraid of them. Just remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all the land of Egypt. He's talking about eradicating, driving people out. And he says, maybe you'll think to yourself, man, I don't, know, I don't know if I can do this. I've been struggling with this for years. I don't know if I can walk in holiness. This has, been a, this has been something my whole family's dealt with. I've never known anyone that's walked free from this. Maybe you'll think to yourself, I don't know if I can. He says, remember, it was God who delivered you from Egypt. Remember, God is the one who helps you. You don't have to do this on your own. Sometimes when you think about holiness, it can almost be us versus God. That's not the attitude he has. He's for you. He wants his strength to be made perfect in your weakness. He's not against you on the topic of holiness. He wants to help you in those areas. He wants to help you succeed. He wants to give you strength and the ability to walk pure and holy and undefiled. Let me give you another example. We talked about Nehemiah rebuilding that wall. 
the wall of holiness. Nehemiah chapter six, verse 15, it says, so on October 2nd, the wall was finished just 52 days after we had begun. When our enemies and the surrounding nations heard about it, they were frightened and humiliated. They realized this work had been done with the help of God. It was amazing how they, they built a wall around a city with their bare hands, laying a rock in 52 days. It, it was astounding the success that they had, that they put their hand to rebuild the wall and it says that God helped them. Even the heathens that were against them had to scratch their head and say, man, this has got to be the help of God. In, in our desire to build the walls of holiness, we're not in this on, their own, on our own. God wants to help us, give us supernatural success in driving sin, things that maybe bound you, bound your parents, bound your grand grandparents, things that you've seen derail in your past. God wants to set you free by his strong hand and give you the help and the power to walk in holiness and righteousness. Psalm 141 verse three, it says, take control of what I say, O Lord, and guard my lips. Don't let me drift toward evil or take part in acts of wickedness. Don't let me share in the delicacies of those who do wrong. David was going to the Lord and asking for help. Sometimes when it comes to our sin, those things that we've tucked away, we feel like we've got to get it straightened out and then we can bring it to the Lord. David brought, David brought, we looked at it early. He already knows it anyway. There's nothing hidden. Everything's fully exposed. Everything's naked. He knows your thoughts. He knows your intent. He knows your desire. He, know, he knows it all. There's no sense in trying to fool him and stuff that thing away. So God, you, you know my heart. You know, I'm feeling, I'm feeling tempted. I don't want to dishonor you. Lord, I ask you would help me. I, I, don't, I don't want to wreck my marriage. God, I don't want to make a foolish financial decision. I don't want to do something dishonest. But man, I'm feeling the pool. I'm feeling like that's the way to go. God, please give me help. Help me not be an idiot here. Help me make decisions that honor you. That David, he, he was going to him. Apparently, there was something with the words coming out of his mouth. He said, take control of what I say, oh God. Put a guard over my lips. God, this is a struggle. I keep saying stuff that's offensive and hurtful. I don't want to do that anymore. God, would you come and help me? So I want to take some time this morning for us to examine our lives, realize maybe there's some things I've been compromising on. I've justified it. I've gone to like 90%. And then like the Israelites thought, man, I've got things under control. And now some of these little things, they actually serve me. It's a mistake. It's a mistake. It's a setup. Don't give him any opportunity. Maybe you realize you need to control the environment. You've made yourself vulnerable by some of these compromises. Instead of, instead of pretending like we've got it all together, just say, Lord, you, you know, and you know I've got this tendency. You know I've got a wandering eye. You know, Lord, I, I'm always jealous. You know, whatever it is, just be honest with the Lord and invite God, God, I need your help. Help me. Let me rely on your strength. Help me to do what I couldn't do on my own. Well, that's this week's message. Thanks for joining us. To stay connected with us throughout the week, make sure you follow us on Instagram and Facebook. You can also watch previous week's services on our YouTube page.